you guys don't mind, give me just a, a little moment of pastoral privilege here. Um, during our first gathering this morning, and again during the second one, I was sitting over there in the corner and I was thinking um, about how grateful I am to pray with this community and reflect with this community. And I was also thinking to myself, um, we're, we're blessed to have a number of pastors in this community, and one of them is Dan. And um, sometimes people think pastor means the person who talks or teaches. Um, but that's neither necessarily biblical nor like real. Um, there are different kinds of pastors who shepherd communities in different kinds of ways. And um, since our very beginning as a community, I just find myself so grateful to have a pastor like Dan who leads us into prayer and reflection um, and does it with such sort of skill um, and with such uh, tenderness. And uh, if he had any idea how much time he puts into thinking about how we should pray together and reflect together. Um, so I just wanted to say that out loud. Maybe you guys want to say thanks to Dan, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now we've been talking about uh, this big idea um, that scripture begins by saying humanity is here to bear the image of God. And we, we keep kind of digging uh, into this more deeply and we'll do some more of that today. Uh, today what I ultimately want to get to is a tool that helps us in the actual work of following Jesus into the restoration of that image, into the healing of that image for the sake of the world. So that's where I wanna get, uh, but we're gonna take a little bit of time to get there. Now, I, I wanna observe, like we have before, that the idea that a human being could bear the image of God, that that's the baseline for what it means to be a human being, like that's the idea that the scriptures reveal. It's not the only option that the writers of the scriptures had at the time that Genesis was written. So like if we think of this as just sort of like, like obvious or everyday, I want to observe that it, it doesn't seem to have been obvious for the people in the time and place that Genesis 1 comes from. So we looked at one example of other ways of seeing that uh, back in January, but like here's another example. So there's an epic called Atrahasis, which is written about 1800 years before Jesus. Uh, it's Babylonian, Akkadian uh, story about the gods and about planet Earth and about what it means to be human. And I just want to observe, this is the kind of thing that was in the air at the time that Genesis 1 was written. So in this story, the way things begin, you have the gods, and you have planet Earth, but you don't have humanity. And what this means is that the gods themselves have to, have to tend to the Earth, but it's not a delightful task for them. It's more like janitorial work, and they're not excited about it. And they have to like uh, dig water ditches for themselves to grow food for themselves so that the gods who are hungry can eat, which is a very different idea of what God or the gods might be like, right? But the gods get tired of this menial labor. So in Atrahasis' epic, what happens is the gods say, let's create human beings to do some menial labor to relieve us because we don't want to do this work. This is how it's spoken of in uh, Atrahasis. This is one of the gods speaking to other gods. Create a human being that he may bear the yoke. Not bear the image, that he may bear the yoke, that he may carry on his shoulders the burden that we don't want to carry. Let him bear the yoke, the task of Enlil. That's one of the gods who was digging the ditches and taking care of the crops. Let man assume the drudgery. This is another way of thinking about like, what it means to be human, and this is in the air at the time that Genesis 1 is written, and it sounds very different from what we read uh, here. So let me revisit this text again. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, 
He created them. That's a very different idea about what it means to be human. This isn't saying, God, I want to alleviate myself of the work that I'm sick of doing, so I will put a burden on humanity. This is God saying, I want collaborators, fellow rulers, to look like me and live like me and breathe into the world the same kind of life that I'm here to breathe into the world. It's a very different idea. And in case you think that God gave up on this idea, in case you think, oh, that got buried and broken so much in our own frail humanity that it never shows up again, let me take you to the very last chapter of scripture. So that was from the first chapter in all of scripture. This is from the very last chapter, Revelation chapter 22. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Listen, and they will reign forever and ever. This story begins with humanity called out into the world to bear the image of God, and it ends with humanity bearing the image of God and reigning with God. This is uh, the arc of the whole story. Now, between that first chapter and that last chapter are many, 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 many reminders that when rulers are broken, they will break the world. Right? When human rulers are broken, they will break the world. There are many, many, many reminders of that. And then also at the center of the scripture, we see um, the arrival of God in flesh and blood in Jesus, who is called the image of the invisible God. Right? And lest you think that, okay, fine, the plot got relocated, and now Jesus is the only one bearing the image, don't miss what Paul says in Romans when he says, we are called and destined to conform to the image of Jesus, that the whole thing's being put back together as we learn from Jesus how the image might be healed and restored and lived out of our lives. This is like, for me, this is in the running. This is one of the nominees to answer the question, what is this whole story about? This big, complicated book with like a thousand pages of bizarre, ancient tales. If you're going to ask what's the whole thing about, this is in the running for one of the possible ways of telling this whole big story, one of the threads that was woven all the way through it. Human beings here to bear the image of God for the beauty and the flourishing of the world. All the ways that we as rulers have been broken within and have broken the world, and all the ways that God is restoring that, not just in Jesus, but through Jesus in us. Big, big story arc, right? And if that's, if that's one of the ways that you can map the whole big story, then you might expect to see microcosms of that big story in individual characters like we looked at Jacob last week. Jacob is a man, like every man and woman in the history of humanity, called to bear the image of God in the world, to make beautiful things of the world, but instead he is grabbing and warring. He seems to be reaching for the, for the things that will make him feel secure, or that will tell him who he is, and then it's in the wrestling of the dark night that he finally seems to let go of that identity, because the things that he was grabbing onto to make him secure and tell him who he is in the world weren't, in fact, actually getting him to who he really is for the world, and he finally had to let go of that stuff. I want to talk about that, about how we know who we are and what we grab onto to tell us who we are. When I was in college, uh, I went over to Northern Ireland. It's on my mind because I'm going there Wednesday, and I'm preaching on Sunday, and if you wouldn't mind praying for me, I'd love that. Um, But I've been thinking about Northern Ireland and a trip that I took with some friends back when I was in college. It was a missions trip, and um, there were different parts of the missions trip. So the first two days of the missions trip was going to be street evangelism at this, like, motorcycle dirt, dirt bike tournament in Northern Ireland. And since it was street evangelism, I found a way to not be there for that part of the trip because that's weird to me. 
So, uh, so I showed up two days later and met up with the team in Ireland. And the part of the trip that I signed up for, the reason I was going and the reason my friends were going is that our little group of friends who were all students at Bethel were also all musicians and we were in a band together and we loved playing music and darn it, we were pretty good. And so we are told that you could go over to Northern Ireland and partner with a ministry there that's uh, serving under-resourced, uh, like elementary, middle school, and high school students, kids that live uh, disadvantaged in a whole bunch of ways. And the, the, the ministry that we are partnering with has a drop-in center where the kids can hang out after school rather than going home to an empty house or a dangerous place. And we're going to let you play music. We've got a venue and a stage and everything, and the music will be a way to reach out to the kids and help them find a home there. It'll be a way to encourage the kids and build common ground with the kids. So we rehearse a bunch ahead of time and develop a bunch of songs that we'd have never played in any other arena like we made trace our buddy learn how to sing I am beautiful by Christina Aguilera <laughs> true story because we found out the kids love that and so we rehearse and then we pack everything up have you ever flown with a drum set over the ocean we did so we put a drum set in cases we spend money on this gear to take it over there we pack so many wires and other sort of equipment to help us make music that on one of the flights, security pulls our bag out of checked luggage, drags us out of the security line, and makes us plug everything in to prove it's not a bomb. <laughs> so I'm just saying, like, we got really amped up for the job to go play music. And I went because that's what I do. That's how I help. But at the time, like, that's, that's how I help move things forward in the world. I play music. If somebody says we need an electrician, not me, right? But if somebody says we need, like, a song, like, to help us Somehow, like, I'm, I'm there for that. That's what I hold on to. It's how I help. It's who I am, right? So we pack everything up. After we rehearse, we spend all the money on the gear, and we get to Ireland. And in Ireland, then we find out, wait for it, the venue hasn't been built yet. <laughs> so we raise thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and take a band over to Ireland, and there's no place to play music. And then they say, oh, don't worry. We'll just turn this into a soccer trip. <laughs> Has anybody heard about my proclivity toward athletics? <laughs> so I flew across an ocean to be told, you're going to play soccer with Irish kids. <laughs> and I realized in that moment, I can't hold on to the thing that tells me who I am. Because who I am is Jason the musician. It's how I help and it just got ripped out of my hands. It was ugly. Uh, by the way, this is a picture from our trip. Uh, this is us on the north coast of Ireland on a tourist day. That's me on the far right, uh, before I discovered skinny jeans. On the far left, by the way, you might recognize our very own, the esteemed, the admired, the wonderful, the talented Jeff Myers, who's playing drums today. That's him up there. We go way back, which means you're not allowed to ask him for stories. Um, so this is us there, and I remember on the trip, this sense that, like, I, I don't know who I am in this context. I don't know how to help. It was bad, you guys. The kids were out there on the field. We're talking, like, eight-year-old Irish kids who are better at soccer than 20-year-old Jay, which is not surprising if anybody knows me. But, like, we're out there, and uh, first of all, I remember being on the soccer field, and I hear this kid yell across the field, and I used to attempt an Irish accent when I would tell this story, but I don't anymore for obvious reasons. But this kid, this kid says, hey, Jason. And I'm like, yeah? And he goes, hey, Jason. It's your birthday, gonna party like it's your birthday, gonna sip a party like it's your birthday. Which, by the way, proves that some of our American exports to the world are not great. That was 50 cent, and it was not helping. <laughs> but the other thing I heard from all of the kids was things like, <laughs> kick the ball! Like, they'd swear at me a lot, you know what I mean? And they'd <laughs> shove me around. And eventually they realized their team was better. If 20-year-old Jason stayed on the sidelines, they stood a better chance of defeating the other team. <laughs> And it's funny now, but 
It kind of wasn't at the time. <laughs> because there's identity issues at stake for me, and I'm like, I hold on to this thing that I do, right? This thing that I have to offer the world, and it tells me who I am, and now I'm in a place where I can't hold on to it. And what I'm coming to learn is actually many of the things that we hold on to to tell us who we are, like Jacob who held on to grasping to tell him he was safe, many of the things that we hold on to to tell us who we are are in fact obscuring who we are. They're diversions from the image of God in our life. They're diversions from trusting God rather than tools to help us do that. There's a, there's a, a spiritual teacher and thinker uh, named A.H. Almas, and he, he says it like this. Now here he's talking about the idea within the scripture is that that we live in the narrative of Adam and Eve, that we've all sort of had the experience of a rupture in our communion with God, and that we long for the return of that. We long to hold on to the sense of existential okayness that we got from that union. And he says we have to deal with the various ways the ego develops to deal with absence and disruption, ruptures and discontinuities of holding. Because the thing that we were meant to hold on to that would actually tell us who we are, we feel like we couldn't get a grip on it anymore, so we hold on to everything else to tell us who we are, to tell us we're okay. Now, I want to get to this tool that I think will help us. Almas uh, is a modern teacher, but his work is rooted in an ancient contemplative tradition, uh, and there's different sort of moments in this tradition. Another moment in this tradition goes back to the early church. This is just a couple of centuries after Jesus. And what's happening at that time in the world is the movement of Jesus is going from an underground radical movement to a socially acceptable religion. That evolution starts happening in the second and third centuries. And so we see... Um, the risk and the wild-eyed sort of life of the church beginning to be domesticated a little bit as it goes to being a socially acceptable religion in the world. And some of the followers of Jesus watch this happening and they sense that something essential is being lost as that happens. And so some of them relocate their lives in the desert and we call them the desert mothers and fathers. These are uh, contemplatives. These are people who took as seriously as they could the way of Jesus and the work that Jesus wanted to do in them. And so this is going back centuries and centuries, but even then, they began to develop a language of our inner world, of our fixations and attachments and difficulties. Sometimes you'd hear the language of like deadly sins or different ways that different personality types, different wounds, different personal histories, different predispositions, different stories, all have different ways of breaking and burying that image. And they develop uh, ways of confronting that within us so we can grow out of it and heal from it. So it's going back centuries. And you can find uh, moments of the story throughout the history of the church. But back to the modern iteration that Almas talks about and that I want to talk about today. I want to bring a tool uh, into the community that many of you are already familiar with and others have never heard of. And the tool is called the Enneagram. Anybody heard of the Enneagram? I know the people who are into the Enneagram are really into the Enneagram. Um, <laughs> Enneagram sounds bizarre. You're like, pentagram? What? I, no. Enne it just, it's just Greek for a nine-sided figure, and the Enneagram has nine different ways of understanding how it is that uh, a woundedness within us, a fear, a ways that we try to hold, that we try to grip the things that won't, in fact, tell us who we are. And uh, I found the Enneagram to be phenomenally helpful, not because it's the ultimate, not because it's good for its own sake, but because it's a useful set of, of words and languages to help me understand my own inner world so I can bring that to God, pray through it, grow out of it. Uh, it's been really useful to me. I first heard about the Enneagram uh, years ago. I was in Chicago at something like a dinner party, and everybody at the Enneagram, or at the, at the, at the party, knew about the Enneagram except for me. And one of my friends who was hosting the party uh, is kind of telling the group, you know, Jason hasn't heard about the Enneagram, but I think Jason might be a five. 
on the Enneagram. And by the way, as we'll see in a second, uh, the numbers are the way you identify them, one through nine, a five. And then there's another person at our dinner party whose name is Ian Cron. And Ian is an expert in the Enneagram, and he writes books about the Enneagram. So Ian has never met me in his life. We hadn't even met at the party yet. And then Ian begins describing a five, like your inner world, your behavior. And he says, so, you know, if, if five is sort of your dominant mode of living in the world, if that's the way that you try to sort of hold the world, right? He says, well, so that would probably mean that you, you're an investigator. You love to observe and analyze. You love to learn. I bet you have lots of books at home. I bet on many topics you know more about the topic at hand than the other people at the table. And I'm thinking, that's right, because I'm sweet. <laughs> right? Yes, excellent. And then Ian says, and you do it because you're afraid. He said, you hold on to that because it protects you, because you're not going to engage anything until you've mapped the room. You're not going to put yourself out there. You're not going to try something unless you're guaranteed some kind of success. You're not going to float an idea out there unless you've researched it to death so you think that you know that you are right. Shut up, Ian. <laughs> he says, every day of your life, you've woken up in the morning feeling like you've got about a half tank of gas and everybody around you seems to have woken up with a full tank and they seem to have access to a filling station whenever they want it and you know that you've got to monitor that energy draw because if you get to the bottom of that tank, you are done. He says, if you're a five, your, your biggest fear in the world is that you will give somebody an inch in your life and they will take a mile. I get red in the face. I actually feel shame through and through. And this guy has never met me, but he named the ways that I try to hold the things that will tell me who I am. And it wrecked me, you guys. Now, I'm not suggesting the Enneagram's um, good because it'll wreck you, but I, I'm kind of suggesting that it's good because it'll wreck you. Um, it's, not like a, it's not like a strengths finder, although it will name your strengths. It'll say, you're good at these things. Here's what you bring to the world. But it'll also say, but probably the reason you develop those strengths is because of some underlying fear or brokenness that you have been covering up. And when you see that, in my experience, if I, if I am brave enough to hold that and if I trust the love of God enough to sit with that, it's that sort of awakening of self-awareness that helps me begin to pray in a way that God can heal me it begins to dismantle some of the ways that I am acting in the world that are breaking the world. It begins to release me of some of those fixations. I've got to hold on to my expertise. I've got to hold on to my posture as the most knowledgeable person in the room. And so, um, so that's my experience of a number that's dominant in my life. But I want to just sort of um, tick through uh, the nine ways that the Enneagram describes some of our inner world. Hear me again. I'm not saying the Enneagram's perfect. Um, you may not know your number today or whatever, but it's a really helpful tool for the language that creates. And what I want to share with you right now is a very superficial flyover, a very quick read, and I'm borrowing from two different sources the way that two different writers describe the nine types. Let's just run through these real quick and see if anybody else feels as ashamed as I was. No, I, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. This won't, this won't be that bad at all. Uh, number one. Uh, this, this, this dominant sort of way of holding the world tries to triumph over the fall through self-improvement. I will fix myself. I will fix things, right? The rational, idealistic type. Principled, purposeful, self-controlled, perfectionistic, with a fear of being corrupt or evil or defective, and a basic desire to be good, to have integrity, to be balanced. This is sometimes called the reformer. Number two. 
uh, in this mode of relating in the world, it looks like manipulating the way others perceive them through service. I'm going to make myself lovable by always helping. This is the caring interpersonal type. Generous, demonstrative, people-pleasing, possessive, with a basic fear of being unwanted or unworthy of being loved, and a, a sort of desperate desire to feel love. Sometimes this mode of being in the world is called the helper. Uh, type three, uh, developing oneself to make success happen. Success-oriented, pragmatic type, adaptable, excelling, driven, image conscious, with a fear of being worthless and a basic desire to feel valuable and worthwhile, sometimes called the achiever. Number four, uh, denying any disconnection with self but trying to control it, the sensitive, introspective type, expressive, self-absorbed, temperamental, with a basic fear that they have no identity or personal significance, and a basic desire to find themselves and their significance or to create an identity, this, uh, sometimes called the individualist. Type five, this is my sweet spot, uh, isolating oneself through withdrawal and avoidance. The intense cerebral type, because I'm sweet. Perceptive, <laughs> innovative, secretive, isolated, a basic fear of being useless or helpless or incapable, and a basic desire to be capable or competent, sometimes called the investigator or the observer. Uh, type six, fearfully paranoid about the dangers in an environment. The committed, security-oriented type, engaging in responsible, anxious, suspicious. They tend to have a sixth sense about risk. They, like, they see risk wherever it is or where it might not be. Basic fear of being without support and guidance and a basic desire to have security and support, sometimes called the loyalist, because their loyalty to a strong person or cause will make them safe. Sometimes, uh, or let's go to number seven. Avoiding the pain of disconnection through seeking pleasure. These are the Epicureans in the bunch. The busy variety-seeking type. Spontaneous, versatile, acquisitive, and scattered. A basic fear of being deprived and in pain. And a basic desire to be satisfied and content, to have their needs fulfilled, sometimes described as the enthusiast. Type eight. Angry at the fall. Angry at the way the world has been broken and the way that we have broken it. They fight for justice and revenge. The powerful, dominating type, self-confident, decisive, willful, confrontational, with a basic fear of being harmed or controlled by others, and a basic desire to protect themselves, uh, sometimes described as the challenger. And then nine, make everything better by submitting to routine living. The easygoing, self-effacing type, receptive, reassuring, agreeable, complacent, a basic fear of loss and separation, and a basic desire to have inner stability or peace of mind. The nine, uh, when they're healthy, are sometimes described as peacemakers. When they're unhealthy, they're sometimes described as peacekeepers. Right? Don't stir the waters, don't ruffle the feathers. So that's like a basic little overview. Now here's the thing about the Enneagram. Um, you can go online and take a test and try to figure out your type. Everybody I know who works on the Enneagram says fine, but it's not that great. Um, everyone I know who works on this says uh, the best thing that you can do is go read the descriptions of each number, read what they are like in their inner and outer world when they're healthy, and then read what they are like in their inner and outer behavior when they're unhealthy. And odds are you will probably begin to zero in on one or two possibilities because that picture of me when I am dark when I'm not integrated, when I'm not trusting God, when I'm holding too tightly to the things that I think will tell me who I am, that picture tends to be a familiar one for, what, for us, even if we don't want to name it or use language for it. Now, um, the Enneagram can become like a party game. Let's not do that. 
Uh, it can be kind of like a, a fun way to tag people. Um, it can be tempting to type people from a distance. Like, oh, I bet, I bet they're a, a seven or a nine or whatever. But the problem with that is the real gift of the Enneagram is that it aligns us with the way that Jesus approached people, right? So first of all, it respects difference. Rather than like leveraging difference for a joke, it respects difference. And secondly, the Enneagram helps us do what Jesus did, which is to assume that there's a depth to a person. I think about moments in Jesus' ministry, like when he's with uh, rich and powerful and religious people, and a prostitute woman comes in and lavishes uh, devotion on Jesus, and they're offended by it. And Jesus says, do you see this woman? Like, did you actually see her, right? Or do you just see a label? I think about a moment when Jesus walks by a beggar, and the beggar cries out asking for the kind of help that he was always asking for. And Jesus turns and sees the beggar and asks him, what do you want? Which assumes that there's a depth in this person, right? Because everybody knows what the beggar wants. He wants money, right? That's the surface level read. But Jesus turns to the beggar and sees a depth to the person. He says, what do you really want? And the man asks for healing, which is a very different kind of request, right? So let's not use this as a dumb party game. Let's not type each other. But I want to propose that as a community and as individuals who are trying to take seriously the image of God in our lives, that tools like this, tools of self-awareness, tools of humility, tools of contemplation that lead us deeper into prayer, deeper into trusting Jesus, can be really, really powerful. Because if the rulers are broken, the world will break, and we have some healing to do, and we need some tools to help us do that. Um, the Enneagram can help you sort of customize your spiritual practice a little bit. Uh, sometimes what you find out is that a community will mass broadcast spiritual practices based on perhaps me, like the leader, right? So like if I'm unhealthy, I might prescribe to this entire church, the best thing you can do to love Jesus is get away and read your books, right? Because that's what I love to do, and I feel really good when I do that. But that misses a couple of things. First of all, I don't realize I may be prescribing that out of my unhealth, not out of my wholeness, right? And secondly, you're not me, right? Um, for, for every person in the room who needs to engage more practices of solitude, there's another person in this room who might need to get out there and take a risk, who might need to be more generous with one another, right? Um, Ryan Yazel, another one of our pastors, was telling me a while ago about a friend of his who's doing medical research. And if I understood correctly uh, what was going on, you know, you have medications that you take, a certain kind of biochemistry that's designed to tackle something going on in, in our bodies, right? So maybe you have uh, diabetes, or maybe you have high blood pressure, or maybe you have low serotonin in the brain, which is leading to some mental health issues, or whatever, name it, right? So you kind of have a biochemical problem that you're working with, and then there's a biochemical solution in the form of a medication. And the way that I was sort of hearing this explained was the problem is, like, when you're designing a drug, you sort of analyze the subset of humanity that has the problem that you're trying to solve. Right? So you study diabetes to develop a drug for diabetes. But you miss the fact that within that subset of persons who have the problem you're trying to solve, there's, um, every person has their own uh, genetic code, right? There's, there's particularities to every single person. And so the work that they're doing is, what if you could take a baseline design of a drug and then do a genetic map of the person you're trying to treat and then customize the drug for that person's body? It could be astronomically more effective this is a little bit like that. Because there are practices that we should all do together. We should read the scriptures together. We should pray together. We should come to Jesus' table together. And then there are ways that we should press into the kinds of practices that will specifically challenge us and grow us up. 
And those are going to be different for you than they are for me. And so I want to put this out there as a proposed kind of tool uh, to respect difference and to, re- and to respect the depth of ourselves and one another and actually grow with Jesus into wholeness and healing. Now, um, this is a really, really superficial read. So this week we're going to put some tools out online, like through Facebook and email, uh, some books, some podcasts, and some online tools. Uh, I would just encourage you, if you find this tool helping you, give it a lot of time. I have friends that have been deep in the Enneagram for years, and they are just now discovering they weren't the number they thought they were for years, okay? Because this inner journey isn't something you can microwave or do overnight. This is a lifetime of following Jesus in, in, our, in our lives and in our hearts and discovering the kind of healing he wants to do. So let it, let it marinate, give it time. If somebody has the guts to bring you in on their inner journey, to tell you a little bit about the wounds that are being named, love them really well, don't fix it, sit with it, and I think this could be an, a powerful sort of, um, I almost think of this like there's an operating system in our church and this is an app that we can add to the community, right? This is a tool that we can use uh, to grow with one another in grace and peace. Um, so we'll put that stuff out there. In the weeks ahead, uh, we're gonna pivot to some topics, some application areas of bearing the image. In the weeks ahead, we're gonna talk about uh, marriage and other relationships. We're gonna talk about women bearing the image. Sarah Bessie's here in two weeks. Don't miss that, May 6th and 8th, yeah. Uh, We're gonna talk about racial injustice and the particular kind of offense to the image of God we see there and what we can do about it. We're gonna talk about the spirituality of spreadsheets. We're gonna talk about uh, a lot of sort of topical areas in this bearing the image, but I, I just wanted to put this one other thing out in the water for us as a community before we turn to those particular points of application. Uh, Chris Hewitt uh, is, a, is a writer who teaches on the Enneagram. He has this quote. Let me show you. I skipped that rhyme, but let me put that up there. Thank you. He says this. He says, the Enneagram's nine types form a sort of color wheel that describes the basic archetypes of humanity's tragic flaws, sin tendencies, primary fears, and unconscious needs. Now, that might sound dark or difficult, but what I know about that is it's precisely there. And our tragic flaws, our sin tendencies, our fears, and our needs, it's precisely there that God wants to meet us and call us beloved so we can heal the image and bring it to bear on the world for the sake of the flourishing of the world. Uh, Chris also tells a story about his spiritual director, an Irish Jesuit priest named Larry Gillick. And uh, several years ago, Larry Gillick went to speak uh, to a room full of elementary schoolers. And during the middle of his talk, one of the elementary school girls piped up, sort of interrupted, because she had made a discovery in in the moment. And you know how kids are when they discover something? They're excited. They just blurt it out. They want to share it. And the thing she had discovered through observation, she said to Larry Gillick in in the room with the kids, she said, oh, you're blind. Because Father Larry Gillick is, in fact, blind. She hadn't put it together right away. When she discovered it, she blurted it out. She said, you're blind. And then her voice turned a little bit sad, and she said, you don't know what you look like. And then she said, you're beautiful. Uh, We sang earlier, can the blind have sight? We are all a little bit blind. We do not know what we look like. Um, And to confront that inner world uh, may be terrifying for a moment, but what I absolutely believe is that on the other side of that work is the voice of God who's actually saying, if you only knew, you're beautiful. So let's get to work. Uh, If you're able, will you stand to your feet? And uh, I've uh, I've, I've just written a brief prayer for us to offer together as a community. And so if you'd like to put this prayer on your lips, you can do that with me. And then uh, we'll just take a moment of silence 
because um, there's far too little silence in most of our lives, and that's not just the Enneagram 5 talking. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll pray this prayer, and then we'll sit together for a moment uh, in the grace and the peace of this community and in the God who's here with us. And then I'll say a couple more things and we'll be on our way. But let's offer this prayer. Jesus, you came to us, the image of the invisible God, because we have a hard time seeing God in our neighbor, in ourselves. Teach us to let go of our fixations so we can hold on to you. Forgive us of our sin and heal us of our wounds that we may be conformed to your image in grace and peace for the sake of the world. As you go today, uh, please don't forget, uh, if you're in this parking lot, let's do the one-way thing. Go out the opposite gate of the one that you came in. Uh, If you have a moment, check out the thank you notes about uh, Twitter and uh, Sonic, the the parakeets. And uh, we'll part with our usual words. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys.